This video is part of an audiobook series featuring The Creative Curve, How to Develop the Right Idea at the Right Time by Alan Gannett. For more audiobooks, please visit my YouTube channel or my website for downloads. Chapter 8. Law Number 2. Imitation. Beverly Jenkins was nine years old when she started walking the 15 blocks to the Mark Twain Library at the corner of Gratiot Avenue and Burns Street on the east side of Detroit. Growing up poor and the oldest of seven children, early on she discovered that books were a great means of escape. Quote, books could take you all over the world. They could show you other people. They could show you other places. We were poor economically, but not in love or spirit or support or any of that, and the books were free, end quote, she says. For the next seven years, she went to the library every Sunday to get new, or Saturday to get new titles. When she stopped going, it wasn't because she'd lost her love for reading. Rather, she had managed to read every book in the library. At first, I thought when she told me she read every book in the library, she was using hyperbole to make a point. No, she was serious. She says, quote, science fiction, The Martian Chronicles, Dune, nonfiction, westerns, Zane Grey. I had read everything in the library. Doesn't matter what it was, end quote. Jenkins had gone through an intense period of reading that left her with an unquenchable love for both books and libraries. After graduating college, she got a job at the reference desk for a drug company, but still continued to read voraciously, especially the emerging category of romance novels that began appearing on bookstore shelves in the 1970s. Many of the most popular romance novels belonged to the historical romance genre. Readers devoured stories of queens, princesses, and forbidden Victorian love. It didn't take Jenkins to long to see a problem. All the characters in these books were white. There were no well-known African-American historical romances. In response, she made a decision. She would create the books that she wanted to read. The book, as she conceived it, would tell the story of an African-American soldier in the all-black 10th Cavalry during the Civil War who was in love with a rural school teacher. Jenkins finished the book, but was resigned to the fact that mainstream publishers weren't exactly open to acquiring African-American-centered fiction. Not then, at least. One of her co-workers was also a big fan of romance fiction and had been writing her own romance novels. When she managed to sell her book to a publisher, Jenkins, unimpressed, or sorry, impressed, told her colleague about her own book. The colleague insisted on reading it and a few days later told Jenkins that she needed to find a publisher now. Jenkins was skeptical, but found a literary agent who began submitting the manuscript around town. After enough rejections to paper her entire home, one day... The phone rang. It was an editor at Avon Books. Recalls Jenkins, quote, The rest, they say, is history, end quote. With her debut novel, Night Song, or when her debut novel, Night Song, was published, it leapt off the bookstore shelves and into the mainstream press. People magazine published a five-page spread on Jenkins, and the reviews were glowing. Jenkins, it seemed, was at the vanguard of an entirely new genre of books, historical black romance. Jenkins had produced something familiar, a historical romance novel, but different, one that included black characters. She wrote it in an era when publishers were finally starting to bring more African-American voices into publishing. Without knowing it, Jenkins hit the sweet spot of the creative curve. 
Since then, she has gone on to write numerous novels that have collectively sold over one and a half million copies. Romance novels make up over one-third of the U.S. fiction market, ringing up sales of more than $1 billion annually, making the romance genre a significant profit center for any major publisher. There are historical romances, paranormal romances, erotic romances, and many other variations as well. 84% of romance readers are women, and most of them are middle-aged. That said, romance novels are often criticized as formulaic. Sarah McLean is a New York Times best-selling romance novelist who writes a monthly column on romance novels for the Washington Post. She is an expert in the history of the genre. She and I discussed the core elements of a successful romance novel. First, readers expect the book or series to conclude with a happily ever after, or at least happily for the time being, moment. For McLean, this makes romances more enjoyable. Quote, the covenant that a romance writer has with their readers is that there will always be a happily ever after. This allows readers to lean into fear and risk while knowing that there is a safe landing at the end, end quote. The constraint gives both the reader and the writer comfort by establishing a by now familiar baseline. Another typical characteristic of the genre is a so-called black moment. There are no racial connotations, however, this is a series of scenes or encounters when all hope is lost. The central romantic relationship of the story falls apart. Says McLean, quote, Neither the reader, nor the characters, nor sometimes the writer can see how it will all work out, and how these two will ever get together again, end quote. This often happens near the end of the book, and the rest of the story focuses on getting the characters back to where they were before. This black moment adds drama and suspense despite readers knowing that the characters will eventually escape their predicament. Guessing how the characters will resolve their crisis not only grabs readers' attention, it adds to a book's suspense. Finally, and not entirely unsurprisingly, romance novels usually depict sex. As McLean puts it, quote, Romance writers use sex on the page as the same way thriller writers use murders. It drives the plot. End quote. It's difficult, she says, to write a love story without sex. Quote, when you're in a relationship and sex happens, it's a complicated experience that changes the way a love story is told and changes the story's arc. End quote. When readers buy a romance novel, they expect a familiar structure that incorporates the three characteristics I've just described. These recurrent features lead to the charge that romance novels are unoriginal. But Beverly Jenkins disagrees. Quote, I don't think it's any different from any other fiction. Can't have westerns without a bad guy and a sheriff, or a bunch of horses. Can't have a mystery without a dead body and somebody trying to figure out who done it." End quote. So, does all art rely on some type of formula? The Cinderella Formula Kurt Vonnegut wrote 14 novels, including Slaughterhouse-Five, which immortalized him in the annals of American fiction. Yet for all his literary achievements, the work that he considered his greatest contribution was not a published book or even a short story. It was his rejected master's thesis from college. Vonnegut was a graduate student in anthropology at the University of Chicago. Unfortunately, he hated anthropology. Quote, it was a big mistake for me to take a degree in anthropology anyway, because I can't stand primitive people. They're so stupid, end quote from Vonnegut. But for all his animosity towards his major, Vonnegut thought highly of his thesis. At college, he had become fascinated by the emotional arc of stories. 
In his thesis, Vonnegut proposed that every story could be mapped out on a graph where the vertical axis showed positive and negative emotion, while the horizontal axis signified time. Using this chart, he began mapping out the emotional arcs of famous works. Along the way, he found four recurrent story types. The first was man in whole. Vonnegut believed that man in whole was the most popular type of story. As he said in the lecture, quote, Now let me give you a marketing tip. The people who can afford to buy books and magazines and go to the movies don't like to hear about people who are poor or sick. So start your story up here. He points to the top of the good fortune axis. You will see this story over and over again. People love it, and it is not copyrighted. End quote. But the man in whole story isn't as obvious as the name might suggest. Vonnegut rides that, or Vonnegut notes, quote, The story is man in whole, but the story needn't be about a man or a whole. It's somebody gets in trouble and gets out of it again. It's not accidental that the line ends up higher than where it began, and this is encouraging to readers, end quote. The second type of story Vonnegut found is boy meets girl. This may sound like a purely romantic story, but Vonnegut meant something broader. Quote, this needn't be about a boy meeting a girl. It's somebody, an ordinary person, on a day like any other day, comes across something perfectly wonderful, thinking, oh boy, this is my lucky day. And then, oh shit, something happens. And he goes down, and then gets back up again. There are also two other story arcs. A Cinderella story is one where there is a rise, fall, and rise to the point of supreme happiness. More than just straightforward romances, classics include Jane Eyre, Great Expectations, and of course, Cinderella, which all share this arc, an uplifting story that culminates with the protagonist achieving their wildest dreams. Lastly, Vonnegut identified a Franz Kafka story. This one is perhaps the saddest. In this last category, says Vonnegut, quote, A young man is rather unattractive and not very personable. He has disagreeable relatives and has lots of jobs with no chance of promotion. He doesn't get paid enough to take his girl dancing or go to the beer hall with a friend. One morning he wakes up, it's time to go to work again, and he has turned into a cockroach. It's a pessimistic story, he says, drawing a line downward towards an infinity symbol, end quote. Not very motivating. These ideas reappeared in a lecture that Vonnegut gave in 1985 that later went viral on YouTube. Years later, a researcher stumbled across the video and found that one of Vonnegut's lines was germane to the research he was pursuing. Here is what Vonnegut said, quote, There is no reason why the simple shapes of stories can't be fed into computers. They are beautiful shapes, end quote. Well, could the shapes of stories be fed into computers? Was there any way of proving that these stories possessed recurring patterns? The researcher soon brought together a team of academic superheroes, experts in sentiment analysis, statistics, and computer science. Based at the University of Vermont, they decided to use some of the latest data analysis tools to see if they could uncover patterns in the emotional arcs of stories, just as Vonnegut had suggested. To this end, the researchers downloaded novels from an online database, which also featured public statistics showing how many copies had been downloaded, which allowed the researchers to understand which books were the most popular. The team then ran the full text of these books through a series of analytical processes with geeky names. Matrix decomposition by singular value decomposition, or supervised learning by agglomerative, or unsupervised learning by a self-organizing map.
These processes and methods enabled the scientists to create story arcs similar to the ones Vonnegut had drawn. What's more, their students were able to detect whether a particular section of a book had a positive or negative emotional sentiment. When tracked over the length of a book, this data allowed them to map the shape of stories, just as Vonnegut had predicted. Not only did the research team find the same consistent story types that Vonnegut uncovered, the difference being that the team ultimately identified six, but it soon became clear that some story types were more popular than others. The data showed, in fact, that among the types with the most online popularity was none other than man in whole. Science had proved what Vonnegut had conjectured. There are consistent story types that authors use in their craft. But do most writers fall into these patterns subconsciously, or are they following patterns deliberately? To find out, we will make a detour into the world of television. The Origin of Constraints You might think that breakout success comes from breaking the pattern. In reality, it is only by following a pattern that you tap into the right level of novelty. Black-ish is a hit ABC sitcom. To date, it has run for four seasons, has an upcoming spinoff, Grown-ish, and has been nominated for both an Emmy and a Golden Globe as Best Comedy. It is a story of Dre, a father who grew up poor, but is today an advertising executive. He and his wife Rainbow, who is biracial, are raising four children. Black-ish explores Dre's conflicts around wanting his kids to retain their identities and heritage at the same time as they, are, as they focus on assimilating with their mostly white friends. In one episode, for example, Dre's 12-year-old son decides he wants a bar mitzvah for his upcoming birthday because he is envious of his Jewish friends. For a work of fiction, Blackish is more autobiographical than most TV shows. Kenya Barris, who created it, is the showrunner, a Hollywood term for the CEO of a show. Like the character Dre, he is married to a biracial doctor, also named Rainbow, grew up poor, works in a creative field, and has struggled to pass on his identity to his suburban children. Black-ish is a fictionalized version of Barris's life. I was curious to find out whether television shows had a structure or pattern similar to the story arcs found in books. Barris could help me answer this question. People in LA are forever stuck in traffic and are, I find, very willing to talk on the phone about their creative processes so long as neither of you minds an occasional car horn. As Barris and I spoke during his commute to work, he explained that a network sitcom episode has a traditional three-act structure, echoing the classic structure introduced by Aristotle in his Poetics in 335 BC. Quote, the first act is going to be the introduction or thesis statement of what the particular topic or thing is, end quote, says Barris. In the episode where Dre's son wants to have a bar mitzvah, the topic on the table is one of cultural identity. Barris goes on, quote, the second act is going to be the body or where you deal, where you unravel, where you get into the gooeyness and funniest of what this particular issue is and how it relates to our family and how it has an unspooling within our particular characters' lives, end quote. In that episode, the second act has Dre calling a family meeting about his son's identity crisis and deciding that his son will instead go through a traditional African rite of passage ceremony. Barris goes on, quote, The third act would be the resolution. When you come to a place of what this information or what this topic or whatever the problem we put around this topic, how it's dealt with and how it lands you in a satiating place for storytelling purposes. In this episode, the resolution comes when Dre allows his son to have a hip-hop-themed bar mitzvah. 
he realizes that his children will have a different childhood from his, and that this evolution is simply part of life. Why does Barris rely on a three-act structure? Barris explains that between each of these acts is an act break, television lingo for those dun-dun-dun moments you find in every show. And after each, in every act break, the TV show cuts to a commercial. It turns out that television's network's advertising requirements set the structure of a sitcom. Quote, you have to give the network three commercial breaks plus a tag, Barris explains, end quote. A tag is the short additional content at the end of most shows after the final commercial break, which can tell, compels the audience to watch the last commercial. So you really have to give them four commercial breaks. In a nutshell, Barris and his writers have felt an externally forced constraint. Their show and other shows need to fit a certain structure by mandate. This has been true since the days of soap company-sponsored television shows, hence soap operas. You might expect creatives to hate these structures and see them as arbitrary rules forced on them by the establishment. Surprisingly, Barris finds that these constraints are critical to the success of any TV show. Quote, We've been selling soap for so long that it's become part of our sort of pathos in terms of how we intake this creative process. Without the act breaks, the stories don't feel like they're being told quite the same. I think that they actually do work. They help to organize our thoughts. End quote. These sorts of structures and patterns abound across all creative fields. When cooking, chefs have ratios. Sprinkle in too much salt and the pasta is ruined. Add too much baking soda and your pastry will turn into a skyscraper. Songwriters need to make their songs a specific length for the sake of radio play. Depending on the category, writers have certain limits for how many words their books can have. Trust me, this is good for readers. And of course, on Twitter, tweets must fit within certain character constraints. As I went around interviewing creators, I found that the vast majority of them enjoyed these constraints. Chefs enjoy the science behind recipes. Musicians relish the challenge of writing a song no longer than three minutes. Structures, formulas, patterns, recipes, norms, and so forth are not a burden at all. In fact, they are widely considered tools of the craft. Later, I'll explain in more detail why the creators enjoy them. But first, let me raise a more fundamental question. Even if creators seemingly appreciate these patterns, do their audiences? The Science of Pop Music Researcher Gregory Burns is a neuroscientist who found a research idea in a surprising place on American Idol. Burns was watching the show with his daughter one night when he heard the contestant Chris Allen sing a cover of Apologize by the band One Republic. The song sounded awfully familiar, but he couldn't figure out why. Then it came together. Three years earlier, when he was conducting a study on musical taste, Burns put several teenage participants into an fMRI machine and made them listen to songs he found online. One of them was the then-relatively-unknown song Apologize by One Republic. Burns couldn't help but speculate, would the fMRI data he'd gathered three years earlier have predicted the mainstream success of Apologize? He dusted off his old data set. At the time, he had tasked the teenagers to listen to 120 song clips across a variety of genres. Since the database he used had public data on the number of song plays, Burns could confidently ensure that the songs were reasonably unknown. After putting the students through an fMRI machine, he asked them which songs they liked the most. Burns wanted to see if there was any relationship between what songs someone said they enjoyed versus how their brain reacted. 
the study yielded some interesting results. Now, though, Burns wanted to go back and see if there was any relationship between the brain reactions of, a, of his fMRI respondents and a song's future sales. Basically, could our brain predict hits? One of the first things he did was check Nielsen's SoundScan system, an online database of song sales, against his own data set. He studied the three-year data sales data for each of the 120 songs he tested. As he analyzed the data, there it was, a correlation. It turned out that the brains of his subject had a per- subjects had a particular response to those songs that later became hits. Or, in the language of neuroscience, Burns uncovered a correlation between the nucleus acubens, a part of our brain's reward system that regulates the release of dopamine, and future song sales. Even more surprising, the students' subjective ratings of each song were not correlated to future song sales. Not at the time, at least. The songs that Burns' study subjects said that they liked were not the songs that later became hits. The students weren't able to consciously predict future hits. Based solely on their verbal responses, you could safely say that they didn't, didn't have the slightest idea what makes a hit song. But unconsciously, on a reptilian level, their brains were able to detect songs that would become future hits. What exactly might the students' brains have been picking up on? Says Burns, quote, My hunch is that it is signaling something a little bit unusual, something intriguing, so maybe it's hitting the sweet spot between what you're used to, but not the same old thing, end quote. Put slightly differently, he's talking about the creative curve. The students were reacting to things that were familiar, but with just the right degree of novelty. Earlier in his book, I explained how mass consumption gives us the tools to know what is familiar, but I also pointed out that familiarity alone is not enough. In this chapter, I want to focus on providing the tools necessary to create the novel. Remix Culture As a third-year student at the University of Virginia, Alexis Ohanian had one goal, to avoid getting a real job. He and his roommate, Steve Huffman, spent hours trying to brainstorm internet startups they could create as a ticket out of the real job rut. The result, eventually, was Reddit. If you've never gone onto Reddit, you are missing out on an eclectic collection of news, adorable animals, controversial discussions, and celebrities challenging the Reddit community to Ask Me Anything, or AMA, in Reddit speak. Reddit, with its cute alien logo, bills itself as the front page of the internet, and its stats back up that claim. Reddit has over 300 million monthly active users, and according to Alexa, the website research service, it is the world's seventh most visited website. Amazon is number 10. As Ohanian explained, quote, when it comes to the English-speaking world, Reddit is the global water cooler. It is the zeitgeist. The discussions that start there often spill over to the rest of the internet, hours or even days later, end quote. Among the many things that Reddit is known for is the spread of memes. Memes are silly images that typically include humorous text. Many originate when someone posts a quirky image to Reddit and the user community begins adding text like Grumpy Cat. One day, Brian Bunsen was playing with his sister Tabitha's new kitten when he realized that the cat, named Tartar Sauce, had what looked like a frown on his face. He posted an image of the kitten to Reddit, where overnight the site's users made it go viral. Soon, people were adding their own content to the photo of Grumpy Cat. Grumpy Cat memes have a straightforward structure. 
on the top line, there is a seemingly positive or neutral statement, like, a little bird told me it was your birthday. On the bottom line, there is a line of, well, what I would call, for lack of a better word, grumpiness. People across the internet create their own versions of this template and share them with friends or on websites like Reddit or Imager. But the business, is me the business of memes is more than just fleeting jokes. I talked to Ben Lashes, who has a particularly millennial job. He is a meme manager. He helps develop the careers of people and animals who, in the ever-turning blender that is, that is the internet, go viral. He also happens to manage the three most famous cat memes, Keyboard Cat, Neon Cat, and of course, Grumpy Cat. Lashes works to make sure that the creators of memes protect and monetize their brands. What endorsement deals might add to the brand value? Which ones would ruin the fun? Lashes tells me that Grumpy Cat is a Cinderella story for cats because she was born in a town outside of Phoenix, in the middle of the desert, where mo no, mo no more than 250 people live. She went from obscurity to people all over the world discussing her face in detail. Grumpy Cat's internet fame is translated into real-world fame and riches. In 2013, Frisky's, the pet food company, signed Grumpy Cat to be its official spokescat. I, of course, ask him the question that must be asked. Is Grumpy Cat actually grumpy in real life? Lashes laughs, quote, She is a very, very sweet cat. She's very affectionate, but it'll ruin her reputation if anyone finds out, end quote. Over Skype, Ohanian explains that memes like Grumpy Cat not only allow any Reddit member to create potentially shareable content, but also that memes lower the barrier to content creation. They establish certain guidelines that everyone can understand, which reduces the mental tax. With a meme, you already know 90% of the joke. In this case, you know that Grumpy Cat is grumpy. Ohanian tells me, quote, What makes it funny is the 10% twist, or what the caption is. That allows many more people to be content creators who otherwise may not have been because it's a lot easier to remix than ex an existing meme than it is to create a new one, end quote. Memes, in fact, make it easy to create content in the sweet spot of the creative curve by prescribing a familiar structure. As we saw with Kristen Ashley in the changing gatekeepers in the romance novel category, the internet has been instrumental in transforming the power structures of creativity. Ohanian thinks of this as the difference between top-down culture and bottom-up culture. Quote, top-down culture is historically what we would associate with culture. Historically, you need to have the means of distribution to create this kind of top-down culture. That is everything from a record company saying, yeah, you know what? Your music is good. We're going to get you on every radio station in America. But top-down gatekeepers would always be surfacing culture that was being created by individuals. Some kid rapping in the Bronx was creating culture, but it wasn't until one of the institutions blessed it and basically pointed at it and said, okay, now we're distributing it, that it became culture, end quote. For Ohanian, the success of non-traditional culture, including memes and self-published authors, is a result of audiences being able to discover these creations online. Quote, the reality is, culture was always being created by individuals from the bottom up, but it was very narrowly filtered for the chance of distribution. The internet democratizes that access to a certain extent. As long as you have access, as long as you have the means to use it, you now have a platform. What we're seeing on the internet is real-time culture creation, end quote. Whether it's top-down or bottom-up, Ohanian believes, 
as others before him have, that all culture is made up of remixes. For Ohanian, creation mostly has to do with the adaptation of something familiar. He says, quote, There aren't many truly original ideas. Originality and creativity are really just about clever remixes, end quote. Memes are remixes of funny pictures. Major movies are, too. Star Wars is a remix of a Western, good guys and bad guys chasing each other, except this time they're in space. A lot of pop music, such as Paul McCartney's Yesterday, is a remix of pre-existing chord progressions, or an actual remix of a pre-existing song. Chefs are often remixing traditional family recipes to make them appeal to a new audience. Constraints, in fact, enable a remix culture. They give creators a framework that ensures familiarity while allowing them to create the 10, 20, or 30% that is novel or different. They allow creators to systematize the creative curve in a consistent manner and not just as one-hit wonders. Such formulas aren't merely a tool of convenience for creators. They are, in fact, the results of physiology. As I explained earlier, our brains react to specific patterns. Instead of having to guess how to tap into these biological desires, creative formulas provide shortcuts. They are reflections of countless generations of creative people working through, absorbing, and replicating the patterns of success. Ironically, constraints free up creators to focus on the novelty portion of the creative curve. But simply knowing that constraints exist doesn't help anybody. You need to be able to, to learn these formulas employed by the masters. And where do you even start? The Franklin Method Benjamin Franklin, a future American founding father, was once a young Massachusetts resident who was ashamed of himself. He had been writing back and forth with a friend, debating whether or not women should be educated, and his father happened to find the letters. His father wasn't upset about the topic of the debate. Ben was all for women's education, but that wasn't the issue. Rather, his father was upset by the poor quality of Ben's writing. Couldn't Ben express himself more articulately? Like a lot of us, Ben Franklin didn't want to let his father down. He made a commitment to himself to become a great writer. To start on this path, he began reading The Spectator, a publication popular in coffee shops in the 1700s across England and America. The Spectator was known for its high-quality writing and point for its pointed, well-sculpted opinion pieces on global affairs. To Franklin, it was the perfect writing model to emulate. Then Ben had an idea. He would create an outline of an article he admired. What were the main points of each section? Once the outline was completed, he would rewrite the article using the same outline and work to craft the right sentences. When he was done, he would compare it to the original to see how well he had performed. After spending some time structuring individual sentences, Franklin made his task even more complicated. He began shuffling his outline. Not only did he have to lay out each sentence, he now also had to figure out the best, most persuasive way to organize the article. The good news? The process worked. As Franklin went through the exercise in imitation, he found his own writing getting better and better. In some respects, his own work was better than the original. Later, he wrote, quote, I sometimes had the pleasure of fancying that, in certain particulars of small import, I had been lucky enough to improve the method of the language, and this encouraged me to think that I might possibly, in time, come to be a tolerable writer of English, of which I was extremely ambitious, end quote. This type of imitation is something I heard about again and again from the creative people I interviewed on behalf of this book. 
what I call the Franklin Method, involves the careful observation and recreation of the structures underlying successful creative work. Creators use the Franklin Method to understand the formulas or patterns that have proven to be historically successful. Along the way, they're supposed to they're exposed to a baseline of familiarity that their audience would know. Then, on top of that structure, they can add novelty while maintaining the necessary familiarity. The Franklin Method isn't just a historical occurrence or artifact. It's still a critical part of understanding and mastering the creative process in a digital world. A Modern Application Andrew Ross Sorkin is a media renaissance man. He created an uber-popular dealbook blog for the New York Times, is an anchor on CNBC's Squawk Box, wrote the best-selling book Too Big to Fail, and co-created the Showtime hit drama Billions. As with Benjamin Franklin, for Sorkin it all started with imitation. Sorkin and I connected over Skype. He was in his Manhattan apartment, barricaded in his room while his children sporadically knocked at the door. Over the occasional shout of his kids, he told me how he built a modern media brand. Sorkin was an 18-year-old college intern when he, be when he began working for the New York Times. He was well-liked by the staff and would do almost anything to endear himself to the newspaper's reporters. When he graduated, he got a job that would be the envy of any journalism major. He was hired as a business reporter for the New York Times' London Bureau. He left for England to launch his career. There was one problem. He was still only 22, with no real experience as a journalist. Sorkin recalls that he was scared. How do you craft stories, or even one story, worthy of the world's greatest newspaper? Without even realizing it, Sorkin began following the Franklin method. He sought out familiar or similar time stories from previous years and studied their formats. Did a story kick off with a quote? When did the writer summarize the key points? Quote, I'd almost always try to turn my article into Mad Libs. End quote. He began building outlines of an ideal format based on what worked, then fit his own story into that container. Sorkin says, quote, I hate to say it, but I was always trying to find the formula, end quote. The Franklin Method quickly taught him the basics of great business writing and helped to skyrocket his career. When Sorkin began writing Too Big to Fail, he once again followed a variation of the Franklin Method, quote, I went to the bookstore and bought five or ten of my favorite business narratives and studied what they were doing, how they did it, and what it was like that I liked about it and what I didn't like about it, end quote. He soon discovered that his favorite books had a lot of breaks, hopping between scenes and creating a breathless narrative. Sorkin emulated this in his own book, making it accessible and brisk. He didn't stop there. For example, he loved how the book Conspiracy of Fools opened with a driving scene and how it gave the book propulsion and movement. Learning of a moment that took place in a car as he was reporting on Too Big to Fail, Sorkin decided to open his book with it. For Sorkin, and most other creators, standing on the shoulders of others and seeing and mastering the patterns laid down by those creative ancestors allows them to create exceptional work that brings together the familiarity with the right twists of novelty. Imitation, in fact, helps Sorkin become familiar with creative constraints, thereby allowing him to communicate his most persuasive ideas within a time-tested framework. As Sorkin and Franklin discovered, these patterns are often best learned via imitation. 
If we imitate the people we admire and reconstruct their past success, we are that much closer to absorbing the patterns we need to create content at the right point of the creative curve. Between consumption of both knowledge and experience and constraints, we now have a much stronger arsenal for enhancing our own creative output. These two tools can help you create ideas that are the right blend of familiar and novel, and thus in the sweet spot of the creative curve. But this only gives the potential for making a hit. To take an idea with potential and make it go mainstream requires two more elements. As Sorkin and I were nearing the end of our video call, he made an essential point, quote, I was also the beneficiary of knowing a lot of those authors I looked up to or knowing people who knew them. I called them up and I would try to almost interview them myself and try to understand what were the great lessons and mistakes they made so that hopefully I would not do the same, end quote. In other words, Sorkin pieced together a community of people he could learn from. As he put it, quote, in just about every endeavor I'm involved in, there is either a partner or some person that I talk to, end quote. Whether it was his co-creators for the TV show Billions or his book editor, Sorkin made a habit of surrounding himself with other creative people. The public may view creators as sole geniuses, but as I spent more time with real-life creators, I found that this couldn't be further from the truth. In fact, building the, the right type of community might be the most crucial part of the creative process. Thank you for watching. Please like, subscribe, and visit my channel for more exciting content.